Welcome to the Brain People Podcast, a show where four mental health experts team up to bring you practical tools for overcoming mental health challenges. The Brain People don't replace your doctor or therapist, but we will give you some extra tools to help you on your journey. So join us as we fight mental illness, one episode at a time. Welcome to the Brain People Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Vinas, and I'm a psychiatrist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Jonathan Edens, who is a psychiatric PA. And today, we have a fantastic topic. We're going to be talking about antidepressants, and we're going to be talking about five reasons you should consider taking an antidepressant and five reasons you may not want to take an antidepressant. So stay tuned in, and we're going to have some good information for all of our listeners. So why don't we go ahead and get rolling and talk about our definition of an antidepressant. So Jonathan, can you talk to us about that? What is an antidepressant? Yeah, absolutely. From from sort of a technical sense, uh, as it relates to psychiatry, we typically just say an antidepressant is something that's used to treat depression. So nothing, nothing... Uh, uh, surprising, I think, to any of our listeners. Um, I think maybe one one thing that might be a little bit interesting, especially if you haven't taken antidepressants before, is just the uh, the how how useful they are for a wide variety of different mental health disorders. Do you want to touch on touch on that a little bit for us? Yeah, you know, we think we often say antidepressants, but in reality, we use them for anxiety, and even for non-mental health reasons. Uh, medications like Cymbalta, for example, are used for neuropathic pain. Um, amitriptyline or Elevil, which it, it was the popular brand name, also used for, for pain and migraine headaches and, and that sort of thing. And, and so these class of medications, even though they're typically called antidepressants, are used for a wide variety of things, uh, not just for depression. Uh, let's let's do a little bit of a brief history on antidepressants. So pop quiz, and everybody's going to judge you, Dr. Binus, in terms of uh, how good of a psychiatrist you are, but do you remember what the first uh, antidepressant was? Well, the first antidepressant actually was used for tuberculosis, and it was called Iperniazid. See, I can't say that. <laughs> no, that's okay. So, so it's it's sort of cousin isoniazid. Yes, was was used uh, very successfully for the treatment of tuberculosis. So they tried to come up with a new version and call it iperniazid. Uh, however, uh, it, you know, it caused a lot of uh, toxicity in the liver. But when they were using it in the treatment for tuberculosis, they found that a lot of their patients got euphoric. Uh, they had a lot of psychostimulation. Uh, they had increased appetite and improved sleep. So this got them thinking, huh, it's not a great tuberculosis drug, but maybe we can use it for something else. And so the following year, and this was, I believe, in uh, 1958, they ended up doing sort of the first study with medication uh, for the treatment of depression. And in that study, it was it was found to be pretty effective. I think something like 70% of patients had a significant reduction. Uh, so pretty pretty interesting how things come about and that's that's sort of a reality of science a lot of times what we discover is not the original reason for you know what we were trying to do with it uh, it's uh, sometimes it's just in this case the side effect was actually euphoria uh and and you know ended up uh resulting in you know the 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 mass uh the mass number of medications now that are used for antidepressants that's right it kind of even reminds me of the antipsychotic story too where you know they they didn't 
think about antipsychotics for psychosis, but then as they were using it, those sorts of dopamine blocking agents for other things, they found like, oh, this actually seems to calm people and reduce their psychotic symptoms. And therefore we were going to start using it for this. So you're right. A lot of medications are actually accidentally stumbled upon and then used for, for other things. What's interesting, of course, is that we don't use those particular drugs anymore. The, the original ones that they use for tuberculosis for depression. And uh, the reason for that is, of course, the side effect profile. But then what came on the scene next was the, well, now it's your, your turn for the, the pop quiz, Jonathan, since you put me on the spot. <laughs> Maybe you'll do better than me. <laughs> well, the, the MOAOIs and the TCAs, mm -hmm. right? Those were kind of the first classes of medications. I think amipramine came out first of the TCAs. And so that was also back in the 50s. Uh, and then I don't think there's anything in between that. And I'm not sure if the atypicals or the SSRIs were next, but I want to say Prozac was like the 80s. Is that is that correct? Yeah, the late 80s actually okay. is when the SSRIs come, came in. So you're... You did your homework. Good job. So <laughs> the TCAs came on, on the scene, that which are the tricyclic antidepressants. So probably the most famous one, I would say, is probably Elevil. Um, and that's because that's actually, when you look at the, at the pool, the data, that's the most effective one. And it's been used forever. Um, and then other, other ones would include like nortriptyline, the amipramine, um, prototriptyline, and, and others. These are ones that we actually don't use a lot anymore. Uh, we do use them for specific things. Uh, for example, like doxepin, we often use for, for sleep still. Um, but because of their side effect profile, they've largely fallen out of favor. But there are certain instances we'll, where we'll consider them, whether it's for sleep or uh, pain or headaches, et cetera. Um, so then really in the 80s is where you had the uh, advent of uh, Prozac, that was kind of the, the big initial one. And we actually still use a lot of Prozac. And then uh, Zoloft and Celexa and Paxil and all these big name SSRIs, which are more selective and they don't have as much side effects. Can we, let's talk a little bit about how, we're not going to get too chemical. We're not going to, you know, teach you all about neurochemistry here, but let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about how these antidepressants work. Can we, can we go through that? Yeah, I, th I think it would be really helpful. I mean, generally speaking, the majority of the antidepressants and especially the, the newer generation ones, the SSRIs and, and then the SNRIs, what they do is they actually block the reuptake. They're called, they're called SSRI stands for selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. So what it does is it actually blocks the reuptake of serotonin into the nerve cell. So essentially there's more serotonin available uh, between the, the nerve cells, which then causes more serotonin stimulation and the serotonin stimulation lasts longer. And the same is true when we talk about the norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, except for in instead of serotonin, we're talking about the neurotransmitter, the chemical messenger, norepinephrine. And so then these medications block the reuptake of norepinephrine back into the nerve cell. And so essentially what happens is if you have more serotonin available in the synaptic cleft, which is the space between the nerve cells, or more norepinephrine available in between those nerve cells, is that you're getting more stimulation of those nerve cells and essentially that neural pathway. And the reason, so so then the idea back in the 1980s and even into the 1990s was what we call the monoamine 
hypothesis of depression. In other words, oh, if you're depressed, it must mean you're deficient in serotonin or maybe norepinephrine or maybe dopamine. And if we can just increase the levels of serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine, then you're not going to be depressed anymore. Now, maybe you can comment whether whether that's completely panned out or not. <laughs> not not exactly. Uh, you know, luckily we've sort of moved on uh, from that hypothesis. It's still obviously extremely prevalent given the fact that most of our medications, pretty much all of our medications, focus on those three neurotransmitters. However, as we'll get into today in a little bit, uh, now we're sort of taking a more, I think, well, I shouldn't say everybody, but at least we are here at Beautiful Minds, taking a more comprehensive approach because we recognize that there are things such as uh, your inflammation status and methylation, uh, you know, things such as uh, other dietary changes and micronutrients that can play also an incredibly impactful role. And it's simply not just about those three neurotransmitters. Uh, so, Let's uh, moving on, and uh, let's let's just have. If a, you don't mind, I'll just oh, interrupt sure. real quick to really affirm what you're saying because the point that we have to understand with mental health and with our physical health, for that matter, is that it is actually a very complex picture. And like you said, it's like okay, there's some aspects there of involvement with maybe elevations or or not having enough of certain neurotransmitters, but that's also, there's reasons even for that, right? And that can have to do with nutritional status. It can have to do with, like you said, inflammation. And it, it really ends up being more about how active certain neural circuits are and the reasons for that. And so, you know, the, the picture is actually a lot more complex. It's not quite as simple, but, you know, that's why the medications can help because they, they can kind of correct part of that picture and maybe mask some of the underlying reasons for the dysfunction, but in the end, they don't necessarily take care of the underlying problem. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're going to do a just brief disclaimer. Uh, this is not what the next sections that we're going to be talking about. It's not individual medical advice. Please talk with your personal mental health pre prescriber before making a medical decision. Uh, for some of you listening, that may be myself or Dr. Binus, so you can obviously talk with us, uh, but just keep that, keep those things in mind. Okay. Uh, so let's let's go through the five top reasons to take an antidepressant. Now we just want to say up front, you know, we're not we're not either for medication or anti-medication. We're for what's best for you as an individual. So let's let's talk about the first uh, reason that you should take an antidepressant. Yeah. So it it really is important uh, for us to understand there is a time and a place for people to take medication. And uh, it's important, like you said, Jonathan, not to just like demonize medications, um, but of course we wanna do things as holistically as possible. But one of the reasons I think is that, you know, obviously there are side effects, uh, but if you really feel like, man, I know there's side effects, but I'm really struggling so much and and I really need some help and 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 I think that the potential benefits outweigh the risks then I think that might be a reasonable reason to actually go ahead and try something because you're saying yeah I understand there's risks of side effects and there's problems with that 
but my depression is just in, impairing my life so bad that I need something to kind of get me jump started here. So there are, I mean, we, and let, let's talk a little bit about some of the side effects because for at least for people that haven't been on them before and they're kind of considering, is this the right time for me to take one? And what should I really be looking out for uh, both in the short term and the long term if I'm eventually going to stay on it? So can we talk about some of the most common, maybe short term side effects? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in general, when I describe prescribe a, an antidepressant, I'm going to be telling people, look, um, most people or a lot of people, especially if you start at the dose too high, then you can get some real GI side effects. In other words, nausea, diarrhea, uh, that sort of thing. Now, fortunately for almost everybody, those side effects are very limited and they go away within days. And, and typically, uh, if you know how to prescribe them and, and the person's not abnormally sensitive and you start nice and low, it's usually handled pretty well, tolerated pretty well by people. So that's not usually too big of a deal. Um, one of the most common side effects though, that actually a lot of people just don't talk about because it's kind of embarrassing is sexual side effects. Yeah. And the sexual side effects hit actually the majority of people, at least on some level, and that can, you know, include decreased desire for sex, um, not achieving orgasm, et cetera. And so that really can impair people's quality of life. And, and there's actually a good majority of people that end up going off of antidepressants specifically just for that reason. Sure. And then, you know, there's, there's other uh, side effects. Um, of course, there's the black box warning that we have to consider when we talk about before, before we yeah, talk about though, I, I do want to say one thing about the sexual dysfunction. Mm -hmm. I've actually used it in certain patients very strategically. So <laughs> I'm guessing you can probably imagine what I'm getting at, but you know, I've had some, uh, I've had some individuals, particularly men that say had an issue uh, with pornography or masturbation and it was causing a lot of rift in their marriage. And because they weren't sexually active anyways, uh, they actually found that to be extremely helpful in reducing the desire um, while, while simultaneously improving their mood and their motivation and stuff like that. So, you know, sometimes a side effect may actually be a good thing uh, when used in, in certain situations. That's true. I've had that experience as well. And, and certain patients have actually asked me and said, I know that these cause me <laughs> cause sexual dysfunction. And I, I, I need that right now because I'm really struggling in this area. So that's actually a really good point. So yeah, to the to the black box warning. So basically, uh, when there's a serious side effect that can potentially be fatal or very harmful, then you know the FDA will often issue a black box warning on certain medications, and and so um, they have done that on the antidepressants. Meaning, the reason that they put a black box warning is because there there is some data that has come out. Um, that said that there, there's an increased risk of suicidality, especially with young people when they're first uh, starting off on the uh, serotonin medications. And, and so basically uh, what, they, what, they, what some of the studies have shown is that earlier on in treatment, meaning the first few days and first several weeks, there is a slightly elevated risk of actually su attempting suicide. And, um, and so that obviously is very dangerous and it needs to be discussed, especially with the young people that are starting antidepressants. So just to be clear, you know, there, there are, 
we, we want to make sure that people understand that there are differences between different types of risks. So a lot of times when we talk about increased risk, um, we're maybe talking about like relative risk versus absolute risk. And so while the relative risk is definitely higher, particularly in younger individuals, the absolute risk, which is the total risk, is still relatively low. And so it's, you know, it's not necessarily, and this is where it gets really tricky, you know, because we can't give individual medical advice. You have to talk with your doctor because there have been definitely cases where the the potential pros you know out, outweigh the cons even in, in even in those younger individuals that's right and 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 so the main thing is that uh, the and when when i've prescribed antidepressants to young people what I, i've let them know about their risk and we've had that conversation like look it's possible that you could have stronger thoughts and and for some it's it's actually that they've already had the thoughts but then the antidepressant actually gives them the energy because it kind of gives mm -hmm. them this boost and and it kind of also triggers more activity in the emotional part of your brain and their frontal lobe which is you know the part of the brain that actually helps them with self-control is still not working well because they're so depressed and so then it, it can it cause this impulsive suicide attempt and so we have that discussion and we don't get in too much detail but we basically say look it's possible you could get more suicidal it's really important that you speak up and you let someone know. And then, you know, if, if I have a pretty good sense that yes, they understand that and that they're going to speak up and also their parents know to what to watch for then. And, and, and obviously they need it and they're really struggling. Then it's like, yeah, okay, we're, we're going to consider that. I would add one more sort of long-term, you know, relatively serious side effect that I have a lot of people complain about when they're on these medications. And that would be like emotional flattening mm -hmm. or numbing. You know, a lot of times this is sort of a dose-dependent response. You take too much and 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 some people get so flat that they don't really feel like they have a whole lot of emotions, even when the context of the situation uh, warrants, you know, having emotions. You know, for example, somebody dies in their family and they can't get themselves to cry. And that can be really disturbing to people. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and a lot of people actually really do want to lower their meds at least so they can feel and they say, okay, I'm not depressed, but I'm not really happy. I'm not really joyful and I'm not sad either, but I just feel kind of almost robotic. And so that, that can bother them. And so there can be not for everybody, but I have heard that as a common complaint. So for the number two reason not to take, or excuse me, to take an antidepressant would be that you've tried uh, a lot of non-medication approaches and those were not sufficiently effective to you. What I tell a lot of my patients is that I, you know, there's, I focus on sort of three big puzzle pieces in terms of overall treatment. And so, you know, there's medications, there's supplements, that would be kind of one piece of the pie. And then there's psychotherapy, which is another big piece of the pie. And then there's lifestyle interventions, right? So a lot of people have, by the time they're getting to me, They've already, they've lived a healthy life. They've done all the lifestyle stuff. They've seen a therapist maybe multiple times. You know, there's some argument as to whether or not it was a good therapist, you know, but in a lot of cases, you know, they've tried those things. They haven't been adequately sufficient for them. And so they're ready to try an antidepressant because that's kind of what's left. Yeah. And, and that makes a lot of sense. You know, if people really have given it a good try with these other modalities, then sometimes that antidepressant can actually help them get over that hump. Yeah. And uh, if you do, if you are in that camp, trying the antidepressant does not mean that you should stop the other things. That's right? true. That's true. And also, you know, I think it's important for people to understand that trying an antidepressant doesn't mean that you need to take an antidepressant for the rest of your life. 
Now, the problem is if you're not dealing with a holistic prescriber who really understands how to help you get off of an antidepressant and how the other things that you're doing lifestyle-wise, psychotherapy-wise, um, et cetera, can help in that process, then it's easier for most prescribers because they're super busy and all that just to say, hey, you're doing pretty good. Let's just keep you on it. You know, so, so it is important for you as an individual and also to work with a prescriber that is really wanting to be intentional if you're, if you're interested in getting off medication long-term. So number three, and this, this will only require just a little bit of explanation, but essentially one, one reason you might want to consider taking an antidepressant or I should say a couple reasons would be you're financially constrained in the fact that maybe you don't have a whole lot of money to invest in some of these more expensive alternative approaches. You're physically limited. So you can't really do a whole lot of exercise. You know, I've had patients come in where they're bedridden. And so it's, it's, you know, getting them to do exercise is nearly impossible, uh, or they just have, they don't have good access to quality therapy in their area. I know, especially in certain rural parts of the country, getting a therapist can be extremely difficult. Now, that's more easily overcome nowadays with virtual with virtual therapy, but it's still a lot of those don't take insurance, and so it can still be pretty expensive. Yeah, absolutely, and so it is important to kind of see your limitations and then respect those, and and um, and then make it make a decision. Uh, the fourth reason is your symptoms are moderate to severe, and they are causing significant impairment in your day-to-day functioning. And and I think that's an important point because oftentimes mild and even moderate uh, depressive disorders and other mental health disorders can be pretty well managed through through lifestyle and therapy. But once you get more towards the severe end of the spectrum, oftentimes medication can be really helpful, at at least as a bridge to help people get through the worst of it. And then oftentimes, you know, when people are through the worst of it, what I've seen at least is that if they're doing those other things that we're talking about, like the therapy and the lifestyle and the spiritual connection and relational uh, growth and all of that, then they can actually get off of medication. Now that might not be everybody, but many people, if they use that holistic picture, but the mistake I think some people make is that they're almost so holistic minded and anti-medication that they wait until it's, it's Mm -hmm. really so bad that even the medication can, it can be difficult for the medication to work. So you don't want to wait until, you know, you're to the severe, 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 um, to that point, but you, there's kind of a fine line sometimes, I think. There, uh, there are two sort of, uh, I guess, uh, individuals that, or I should say with severe depression or qualifications that would give them a diagnosis of severe depression that in general, I'm going to always sort of highly recommend starting a medication because it's in the, in these cases, we have to take a little bit more of a all hands on deck approach. And at least for me, you know, those, those are going to be, uh, you know, patients with suicidal intent or urges, right? Um, if, if we can get to, to the hospital, we're probably going to do that. You know, otherwise if they've got really well support, you know, supportive family, um, then we're probably going to start them on a medication if they haven't been. Uh, and then the, the other, the other one would be uh, major depression with psychosis. Yep. So these are going to be far more severe cases. Usually, you know, they might have these hallucinations that are telling them to do certain things um, that, that can be very convincing. And so that's kind of another concerning case. Absolutely. I fully agree with that. So what's our last one? Uh, you need faster results. So maybe we can explain this one in a little bit. I'm not to say that, uh, so, so one, so a reason to take an antidepressant would be 
that for whatever reason, you just need those results very quickly. Uh, reason we say that is because at least relatively speaking to the antidepressants, a lot of these more lifestyle interventions are going to take a little bit more time for those things to reach sort of a full effect. So uh, specifically like diet, you know, diet can definitely have a positive improvement relatively quickly, but at least in, you know, in terms of a lot of the studies that we've seen, that, you know, that and exercise, these things tend to overall, uh, they tend to catch up with the effectiveness of the antidepressant over time. Um, and, and in a lot of cases become more effective than the antidepressant, the longer that you do those things. And then also psychotherapy, you know, this also does kind of depend on the quality of the psychotherapy. Uh, but in a lot of cases, you know, we're looking at maybe six weeks to reach maximum effect for an antidepressant. Whereas with psychotherapy, it might take you a couple months to get in. And then, you know, it takes a couple sessions to get the ball rolling. And so you might be looking at more like a few months before you're seeing some pretty significant results. That's right. And I think that speaks again to the idea that oftentimes these different modalities can actually work synergistically. And as you then start engaging in some of these other things like exercise, nutrition, therapy, et cetera, that can be helpful as well, but those ones can actually be more enduring, then you can start to wean off antidepressants. So we've touched on five reasons that we should consider taking an antidepressant. Uh, let's talk about some reasons why we should not take an antidepressant. So the first reason would be you've tried them before and they weren't very effective for you. So why, why do we say that, Dr. Binus? Well, one of the reasons we say that is, you know, a lot, a lot of people will take an antidepressant and then it'll be not very effective. And then they'll say, okay, well, I'll take another one in. And, and you go back to your doctor and you're like, okay, this one didn't work. And then you just keep trying and trying pretty soon. You start feeling like you're hitting your head into the wall and it gets really frustrating. And, and in fact, you know, there's actually studies that show that the more antidepressants that you've tried, the less likely they are going to be effective. In other words, when they did the largest uh, study on antidepressants ever conducted, the STAR-D trial, they found that for the first antidepressant, about 27% of people actually went into remission. So that means that the antidepressant helped enough that you know they were lo no longer depressed. But then if that one didn't work, um, then they would try a second antidepressant. And what they found is that for people where the first one didn't work and then they tried a second one, the second one was only effective 21% of the time. Okay. Now, for those that didn't, uh, didn't respond to the second antidepressant, they would try a third antidepressant in the trial. And for that, then it decreased to 16% effective remission rate. And then if, if that third one didn't work, then they would try a fourth one. And once they've, once you've tried three antidepressants and those first three didn't work, the likelihood that the fourth one is going to work is only 6.9%. So less than 7%. So what we see is the more antidepressants you've tried without success, the less likely they are to be successful. So literally pretty soon you are hitting your head into the wall. I mean, it's just, you're going nowhere with it. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, it's, it's extremely telling, not only in the fact that the, with each subsequent antidepressant that's attempted, uh, it becomes less and less effective, but also, you know, as that study points out, it becomes, uh, less and less tolerable as well. 
know, the, they, they showed that with each subsequent antidepressant, patients had more and more side effects. So as you said, it's not just, I mean, it, the hitting your head against the wall is a perfect analogy because it's very, it can be very painful as well, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, I think we were even talking about this before the podcast, like, well, why are the, the side effects ex, almost exponentially worse on, on every one of those levels? And maybe part of it is even just the frustration of like, it's not working and, and your body almost develops like this, this re- sense of repulsion to taking <laughs> another antidepressant. And, and, and certainly that, that I don't think that's far fetched because what we see is, is placebo, whether, you know, we're thinking about something in a good way or in a bad way has a huge effect on our ability to respond or our side effects and, and all of that. So what, one thing that's also you can take away from the start of you study, especially with that first antidepressant, uh, 27% remission rate, right? So approximately one in four people would go from having clinical depression to not having clinical depression within like a six week period. Uh, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't talk about the patients that do respond, but don't completely remit. Right. So there is, there's more than that, that will actually have a positive effect, but it, it creates a little bit more of a, uh, sort of a difficulty to determine whether or not that is worth it. Yeah, absolutely. One interesting thing too, though, is that, you know, if you, if you look at that, the whole study and all the data is that at the end of the day, um, people did respond, they did remit, but then when you, when, when they followed those people, very few actually maintained their remission as well. So even for those people that remitted, they didn't maintain it long. Most of them, I should say, didn't maintain it long-term. And, and so again, we're not trying to demonize antidepressants, but it's clear to me, both in, from clinical practice and also from looking at the research that just taking an antidepressant by itself it just ain't enough. Yeah. We got to do more than that. <laughs> it's just one piece of the pie, so right. to speak. Exactly. Uh, so uh, reason number two, not to take an antidepressant. You're very concerned about adverse effects or you've had significant side effects to one in the past. So we we kind of already talked about some of those, right? If uh, say you had you know the increased suicidality with one or you had the sexual dysfunction and that's incre- incredibly important to you, uh, then, you know, this would be something you'd obviously want to consider. Absolutely. And number three, you are worried about psychological or physiological dependency. Now that that's kind of an interesting one because we don't typically think of antidepressants as being addicting, you know, like maybe some of the other medications that we have, like opiates, we, we think of that more of it can become obviously a drug of abuse. And uh, we think of Ativan or Valium and some of these benzodiazepines as being typically more of a drug of abuse. You don't think about like people like, oh, taking extra Zoloft or Prozac to get high, right? <laughs> so that's not really what we're talking about here. What we're actually talking about is that the brain does change when you ingest a foreign substance into your body, the brain actually does go through changes and to, to, to kind of try to maintain homeostasis basically. And so when the brain goes through changes that then causes, um, if you then take that medication away, then you can actually get withdrawal symptoms, even if you're not quote unquote addicted or abusing it or something like that. 
essentially your body gets used to having that there. And all of a sudden when it doesn't have it there, it needs to sort of readapt. That's right. And that, and that, uh, that phase in which you're trying to get back to a new homeostasis, uh, can be very uncomfortable. And sometimes for some people, you know, withdrawal doesn't happen, you know, depending on the medication, some people it's a few days or a couple of weeks. And for other people, like it can be months yeah. that they can, that it might take for them to recover. And, you know, there's, there's probably an argument that some people don't ever fully recover. Yeah. In your experience, what, what have you seen as far as like the, the ones that seem to be kind of the hardest when we're talking about antidepressants for people to get off of? Uh, Paxil and Effexor. <laughs> yeah. Those can be hard. Those can be hard. I've also seen uh Cymbalta be challenging for some people as well. And I've, you know, a fair amount of people with those withdrawal symptoms, they can get these electric zap, like mm -hmm. feeling, I don't know if you've heard yeah, patients yeah. describe that. Like yeah. it's, it's almost like electricity shooting through their brain and, and that sort of thing. And, 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 and with Paxil, it can just be a, a lot of anxiety and just agitation that people can feel. And, and so, yeah, it, it can be very difficult for people, but I will say there is hope, but you have to really do it very slowly, ideally under the guidance of a holistic minded practitioner that can help you not only do the lifestyle things, but oftentimes proper supplementation with different supplements and certain foods and whatnot can actually help to mitigate some of those withdrawal effects. But I will say, probably the most important aspect of it all, at least in my experience with the more difficult to withdraw from ones is to do it very slowly. And I think people try to do it oftentimes way too quickly, especially if you've been on it for a long time, you got to be patient with the process. You really do. Yeah. But you don't have to feel stuck. You know, right. like, like we're saying, if you do it correctly, we can really mitigate the risk of withdrawal or at least significant symptoms that would make you want to go back. But I know some people, they just don't feel like they're uh, they've tried maybe by themselves, right? And it's been it's been such a terrible experience that they get in this position where they feel like I, I'm stuck, right? I can't get off of this medication. I'm going to be stuck on it for the rest of my life. Um, you know, talking a little, let's talk a little bit about psychological dependency because I think that's another really important aspect of this. Uh, and and this goes a little bit back into that feeling trapped or stuck on the medication. But but for some people also. It's, you know, maybe they did get some initial benefit from the medication when they first took it, or at least they believed that they did. And not to say that, you know, it couldn't have happened. That's, that's not what I'm trying to suggest. Of course, a lot of people benefit from these medications, but because of that emotional and mental safety net that they originally got, uh, they feel like they, they, they feel like they can't go without it. Mm -hmm. Right. And so with, without the medication in their system, then they just feel like they're going to revert back to where they were or worse. And, you know, our hope is always that we can, even if you're taking medication, that we can encourage you to get better in other avenues, which we'll talk about here in a second. And so therefore the need of the medication reduces over time. Absolutely. And I think, you know, to really help get over that psychological hump, it's important to have a sense of, of like, I, I can do this like a belief, like, no, it's possible for me to do this without medication and also a, a support system in place too, like a sense of like, okay, I have a support team here uh, from maybe a mental health provider or family or so, someone it's, I'm not in this alone. If, if something happens, you know, I have kind of a, a, a backup and, and I'm not just going to be like up a Creek without a paddle kind of experience. You know, one other thing I wanted to mention about the physiological dependency or is, is that there are some studies that show that, um, there are, you know, definitely brain changes that occur with changes in serotonin receptor uh, availability and, um, 
And also even some studies that, that show that maybe the amount of serotonin nerve cells themselves might even go down. And so that's, again, one of the concerns that people have in the long run of being on these medications. Are these changes permanent? And, you know, I don't know where that threshold is. Uh, I think it probably differs from person to person. But I will say that I think the ideal, and I know life is often less than ideal, but, you know, if someone people often ask me, well, how long can I kind of safely stay on this medication without potentially causing um, more permanent changes in my brain that are more difficult to reverse? And I usually would shoot for six to 12 months. Now, that being said, there are situations where because of the severity of someone's mental illness, they do need to stay on it longer than that. So I'm not trying to say everyone can get off, but in an ideal scenario, you know, to prevent those long-term brain changes and to make it more easy for your brain to maybe bounce back to its pre-medication state as far as like serotonin nerve cells and receptors and all that, probably just six to 12 month windows, something to consider. Uh, For number four reason, or the number four reason uh, to not take an antidepressant is that your symptoms are, are mild or, you know, mild to moderate. Uh, And, and one thing I do want to say about this is uh, you may believe that your symptoms are mild, uh, but you know, really you should make that decision with uh, with a mental health professional. I've had tons of patients come in who either uh, over-report or under-report, and really when we kind of dive into their situation, you know, it turns out that uh, you know when they filled out the screening or when they kind of reported to me, it was it was really they were only there because maybe other people thought they should be there, but actually diving into it, it was like, whoa, you're actually dealing with a very severe case of depression. And so, so, but in general, you know, if if you and a healthcare practitioner can come to that agreement that hey, these symptoms are relatively mild, then you know, a medication may not be the right fit for you. Yeah, and there's so much we can do, and so much we're learning about holistic tr- treatments that oftentimes for those mild and even moderate cases, we can get really good results. And, you know, I'll even go as far as to say there are at times even severe cases that I've seen turn around without medication, but we just have to be a lot more choosy with how we're going to deal with those situations, a lot more careful. And especially for the more moderate to severe cases, it's so important for a really good mental health pr- uh, professional prescriber to be involved, to really oversee, to, to watch for those danger areas so that things don't head south. One thing I will say also is just with antidepressants, they actually tend to be also more effective the more severe it is. Now, part of that may simply be that there's more room that you can actually change, right? But in general, the research has shown that the benefit we get from patients with more mild to moderate symptoms tends to be less significant in those cases. So, so that's just sort of another nail in the coffin, I guess, for, yeah. for, for those individuals. And that's probably why we, we've also seen in some of the research trials on antidepressants is that some of the research trials actually don't separate from placebo. Mm. And part of that is probably because they're looking, you know, also at the milder and, and moderate depressive uh, individuals. And, and, and so, you know, it, it just goes to show that it's not a one size fits all approach. So what is number five, So num- Number five, uh, you have not tried non-medication treatments. And we've been alluding to this and really talking about this throughout this uh, podcast episode. But basically, you know, if you haven't tried holistic approaches, you really should. Because there's so much we can do to treat 
our mental health and get us back on on track, even without medication. So, Jonathan, maybe you want to touch on a few of those things. Yeah, I've uh, I've talked about the lifestyle interventions and what I call the core four before in a previous podcast. But essentially, that's diet, exercise, sleep, and sleep hygiene, uh, and social activity. Right, social engagement. So, uh, you know, we we've we've uh, gone into those specific things in detail in other podcasts. Uh, so we don't, we're not going to do that here today, but just know that those are incredibly important for not only just mental health, but general health as well as, uh, uh, you know, I mean, it can, it can permeate into so many different aspects of your life. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and those four are very, very important. And, and I would probably add, you know, maybe we can have our super six because <laughs> you got your, your, your core of four. Let's try our super six. So I, I would add two that I think are very important too. And, and one, one is the psychological, you know, the cognitive therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy has been shown time and time again to be effective at the most effective psychotherapy for all sorts of mental health disorders and uh, depression, anxiety, no exception. And the results of, of psychotherapy, specifically CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, are more enduring uh, than medication. And so it's a, I think it's a must-have to really delve into uh, some psychotherapy. And, and you don't necessarily need to even always do it with the therapist. I mean, there's a lot of great cognitive behavioral therapy books, self-help books that are wonderful. And then the other thing that I wanted to point out that is very helpful for for patients and for people in general and and the research there's actually ro- very robust uh, literature on this is that healthy spirituality can be very helpful and so you know to me that kind of does fit under that relational umbrella that you're talking about the social but also mm-hmm. you know the spiritual can be tremendously helpful because that's where you can take a lot of these existential concerns to you know take it to god and say you know what do I do with stuff outside of my control, for example? Where do I get strength to overcome things when um, I, I don't have that strength within me? And so there's a lot to be said for a healthy spiritual experience, which, by the way, I want to remind our listeners, there's a huge difference between healthy spirituality and unhealthy spirituality. And uh, that's something that you know we're going to talk about more in subsequent podcasts. But a truly healthy spirituality can go a long ways in helping people's mental health. So we can see that obviously there are a lot of good reasons to consider taking antidepressants, but there's also a lot of good reasons to consider not taking an antidepressant. And so this is not an easy decision. I want to encourage our listeners to really think through this very, uh, make this a very thoughtful process. That's one that you don't necessarily try to do on your own, that you try to do it with a mental health professional who is holistic minded. And uh, if you, if you can get some family support or involvement in making this decision, that can be very helpful as well. And uh, always remember, even if you do take an antidepressant, there are so many other things that can complement that and make the outcome so much better, especially in the long term. So if you only take one thing away from today's show, remember this, if mental illness is a whole person problem, then it must have a whole person solution. I'm Dr. Daniel Bynus. I'm Jonathan Needens, and you've been listening to The The Brain People Podcast.
Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes, find us on social media, or support us financially, visit thebrainpeoplepodcast.com. 